Most of us don't remember the early 20th century in horse racing when well-entrenched racing and breeding operations like the original Calumet Farm, Green Tree Stable, and King Ranch churned out big horse after big horse. The closest we come now might be Windstar Farm, and they have three horses entered for this year's Kentucky Derby. We'll talk with their CEO, Elliot Walden. Plus, we'll chat with a man who's the antithesis of Windstar Farm, a man who was once a journeyman jockey and then a computer software salesman. Now Jeff Bloom owns horses, and one of his has a big-time chance to take the Kentucky Oaks. We'll have all that and more on the Wednesday edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN It was our own Mike Greenberg who, before the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament in 2000, said on what was then our new morning show, Mike and Mike, that if you enter more than one contest to pick the winners of all the games in the tournament, you shouldn't fill out different scenarios in different pools. It should be the same set of picks for each of them. He called it the Sheet of Integrity, and it became a thing on Mike and Mike for 15 years. I guess there's a reason that Greeny has little, if anything, to do with horse racing. It might be next to impossible to teach Greeny about exotic bets like partial wheels and trifecta boxes. So, when you go to wager on the Kentucky Derby, which some of you might be inclined to do, I'm not advocating that, I'm just saying, you might make bets that have multiple horses involved, two or three on top to win, four or five more to come in second or third, but what you're probably not going to do, although you probably wish you could, is to do that kind of bet by buying ownership interests in those horses you like. To quote the great tennis player Martina Navratilova when referring to a breakfast of ham and eggs, the chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. Well, Windstar Farm in Lexington, Kentucky is really committed this year. They've bought ownership stakes in no less than three horses in the run for the Roses. Florida Derby winner Audible, Louisiana Derby champ Noble Indy, and Justify, winner of the Santa Anita Derby. And don't forget about Quip, the winner of the Tampa Bay Derby, and second in Arkansas, who's being pointed for the Preakness two weeks after Kentucky. No sheet of integrity needed here. Whatever bets you make on the Kentucky Derby won't be nearly as impactful as the bet Windstar's making. And to chat about it with us here on In the Gate is their CEO, Elliot Walden. Now, it would be easy to assume that with your ample resources, you would have just cherry-picked the best prospects once you knew who the players were. But it doesn't seem that it happened that way. It seems you've been involved in the partnerships for each of these three horses since the beginning. So, how do you feel about three of them making the Derby? Well, it's a great honor and a privilege, and, you know, it's something that you can't win it unless you're in it, and so it's step one to, you know, get eligible, and then it's a whole nother deal to to even think about winning it. So we're just grateful that we're 
coming in with three very live chances. Noble Indy took the lead as Marmelo's dropped back. Three furlongs to go. It's Noble Indy who leads by two and a half. Lone Sailor starts to gain. Here's Lone Sailor's bid. My boy Jack is the wideout for Kent DeSormo. Into the stretch. My boy Jack is coming with a long run. Lone Sailor looks to battle. My boy Jack in the final furlong. Noble Indy toward the inside. Lone Sailor. Noble Indy. My boy Jack toward the rail. Noble Indy and Lone Sailor. Noble Indy to win the Louisiana Derby from Lone Sailor in a photo finish. I mean, it seems like it was about a 100 years ago that Noble Indy won the Louisiana Derby. I mean, it's six weeks until the big race. So just give us a little scouting report. Refresh our memories on Noble Indy and Audible and Justify. Well, Noble Indy is doing very well. I was very happy with his race, happy with the way that he fought back. He was flying a bit under the radar because of the horses that Todd has in that won more recently and also Bolt Oro and, and Justify and then Good Magic being a two-year-old champion. So, you know, he is flying under the radar, but I think he's in with a very, very live chance. He's doing extremely well, and six weeks is a good timing into a race like this. And Audible also, it'll be five weeks since he had last run I don't know what to make of him. I mean, visually, it looked good. The numbers don't necessarily look the greatest. What is your sense of where Audible is? Oh, I think he's very live. I think he's, you know, one of the horses that people don't seem to be talking about, but that has the credentials to win the whole thing. He came out of a race that has produced five of the last 11 Kentucky Derby winners in the Florida Derby has done nothing wrong himself in the afternoon. His two races in Florida were extremely good. They both showed a versatility. The first one, he was close to the pace, and the second one, he actually fell back and came from off the pace. So I like his adaptability, his willingness to do whatever it takes to win, and uh, we're looking for a big effort. Justify, in particular, turned a whole lot of heads with his win in the Santa Anita Derby. Prodigious talent matches established class. It's justified by length and a quarter. Baltoro taking a run at him, but really having to be pushed on by Castellano. Smith looks confident on Justify reaching the top of the stretch. Justify leading past the eighth pole. He's a couple of lengths in front. Baltoro is closing on the inside. It's justified by three quarters of a length. Baltoro trying ever so hard, but Justify. Another exhilarating exhibition by the supremely gifted athlete. He's on a dizzying ascent to greatness, winning the Santa Anita Derby clearly from Baltoro. Yet he, like Magnum Moon, will be trying to break the dreaded curse of Apollo. Apollo in 1882, last derby winner not to have raced at the age of two. What do you think has made it so difficult to pull that feat off? Well, I think that probably not as big a deal as people are making it out to for two reasons. One, I think if you look at if the horse, if the race has 20 starters, I just wonder how many of them actually didn't start at two. So I think if there's a high percentage of them that started at two, and so therefore your sample size is much, much smaller. It doesn't matter what your credentials are, you're still a one in 20 chance to win the Kentucky Derby because of the field size, because the distance not being an unknown, and because horses are coming together from all regions. So if two out of 
20 horses, didn't run at two, and 18 did, yeah, of course there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of horses win the Kentucky Derby that started at two. That's one. Two, you know, I think you look at this field especially, a lot of horses in this field are coming in with a very few amount of starts. It's not like it was in the old days where everybody started as a two-year-old, everybody had 10 runs before the Kentucky Derby. You know, we're going into it with Justify with three. We're going into it with Noble Indy with four. We're going into it with Audible with five. So, you know, you take uh, Magnum Moon four and Good Magic five. So all the main contenders haven't started that many times. So I think, you know, eventually it's going to happen. I'm not too concerned about the curse. It kind of reminds me of the old days we used to talk about dosage, and and you never hear that word brought up anymore. Well, you know, I was looking at some history and saw that Sunday Silence, when he won the Santa Anita Derby in 89 before winning Kentucky, that happened two weeks before the run for the roses. I, I can't even imagine that now, the way the sport has changed. But let's put it from another way. What might Justify have that others didn't, like Curlin and Bodemeister, and that's what I'm talking about, who all finished well but not in front after not starting at age two? Well, I think, look, I, I don't think he's got anything on him at this point. You know, they, Curlin came in very highly regarded. Justify is coming in very highly regarded. Bodie Meister came in very highly regarded. So, you know, he's going to have to take that next step. I mean, for me, the concerns about Justify are not whether or not he started at two, but the fact that he's running two five-horse fields and a seven-horse field, the fact that he's only won at one racetrack. Those two things are the biggest question marks in my mind about justify now on the other side of that he's extremely talented so give me talent over experience every time and i'll take it elliot walden the ceo of winstar farm joining us here on in the gate winstar and partners will send out three formidable starters in the kentucky derby you own in partnership the three that we've mentioned plus quip who's likely headed to the preakness now quip and noble indy are horses you've bred as is Bolt Dioro, who's won three graded stakes in his career and sits sixth on the Derby point list. How do you determine which horses you keep to race and which you send to the auctions? Well, Bolt Dioro was our best yearling that year. Um, he ended up bringing 630000 at the sale. And we operate this farm as a business and try to keep it sustainable from an income standpoint. So if they can bring that kind of money as a yearling, they're typically going to be sold. Quip, on the other hand, was a first foal out of a, a young mare that was medium-sized, felt like that he was going to be a $150,000 horse, but thought he was an athletic-type horse that could improve with time, and so we just decided to retain him. Um, Noble Indy was a horse we did offer for sale. We wanted it 50000 for him. We didn't feel like that was unreasonable at the time. We thought he was a nice horse, and we actually bought him back for 45000 So. He was offered for sale, and typically we'll sell 90% of our, our yearling crop. Now, how much of having three derby starters is luck, and how much is an evolution of your breeding and racing strategy? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, luck is, is a big part of this, but I like to believe that hard work and, and good decisions and 
we have a great team here at WinStar, and and myself and David Hanley help make those decisions on bloodstock. You know, I think hopefully if if it was all luck, I wouldn't get up at five in the morning and and work twelve hours a day. So I, I'd like to think some of it's the fortune of of working hard and having a good team in place and and some of it obviously is luck so i can't really know what the quotient of that is well i mean let's put it this way are you breeding to own more these days less it doesn't matter is there a shift in strategy no i mean the strategy's been the same and i and i think that's evident throughout the history of winstar farm i mean i think if you go back in history i think we've run more horses in the kentucky derby since its inception since Windstar Farms' inception, than anyone. So, I think we've averaged over an 18-year period, actually a 12-year period, because it did take us five years to kind of get rolling until our first Kentucky Derby starter, which was Bluegrass Cat in 2006, who finished second. I think we've averaged over two starters per year uh, since that time. The full crop has dropped significantly from roughly 38,000 in 2005 to around 22,500 each of the last two years. That would seem to benefit a large operation like Windstar, whose resources far outstrip the little guy who in the long run just can't compete. What role do you think that dynamic plays in your winding up with three derby starters or two per year, as you mentioned? I think that's a part of it. I mean, I think that for sure, you know, one of the things that we are blessed with is a great owner. And, you know, he does have the resources to try to commit to having a high-level operation, and and we're very grateful for that. And I say that in, in all seriousness. I grew up on a farm with 300 acres, and my dad tried to make a living at it. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there trying to make a living at this business, and Mr. Trout doesn't need to make a living at it, but he does want it to be a sustainable operation. So we apply a lot of business principles. But there's no question that having an owner that has the resources to be able to commit to allow you opportunities, it plays a big part in it for sure. Windstar won this race, of course, in 2010 with Super Saver. What do you remember most from that whole experience? Gosh, it was pretty much surreal. You know, we'd been in the position before, and in fact, uh, I think the year before we were 15th, 17th, and 18th or something. I mean, it was it was it was terrible. So, you never really get your hopes up too high. And when he turned for home and kind of cut the corner with Calvin Burrell and and opened up three, it was like, come on, wire, come on, wire, <laughs> and uh, uh, it was just a really exciting moment. It was, you know, a moment of blessing it was a moment of gratefulness just because i don't think you can you know make it happen it's pretty similar to winning the super bowl or you know winning the final four i think there's a lot of good teams that wind up in the final four but there's only one winner and i think it's the same thing in the derby there's a lot of good horses that wind up in the starting gate from twenty thousand foals a year but there happens to be only one winner and i just don't think you can manufacture that Well, I appreciate your candor here and your uh, insight here. And thank you so much and the best of luck in the Kentucky Derby, sir. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate. But when we come back, a man who was a journeyman jockey for nine years, then a financial analyst and software technology sales rep, 
Now he owns a horse who has a really good chance to win the Kentucky Oaks. Jeff Bloom joins us when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. In 1993, Michael Jordan left a pretty good career with the Chicago Bulls. He'd just won three NBA championships in a row and was in the middle of an eight-year, $26 million contract, which at the time was a top-level deal. He left to ride the buses in the minor leagues of baseball. That lasted a couple of years, as you probably know, and then he returned to basketball. Lorena Ochoa was the best female golfer in the world. She won 27 tournaments, then retired at the height of her powers five years ago at the age of 28. She wanted to start a family and work on her charitable foundation. Bob Costas, the well-known broadcaster, has long talked about a dream he's had to spend one summer calling games for a minor league baseball team. It never actually happened, but Costas, like Jordan and Ochoa, wanted to do it to leave the glitzy big events and big lifestyle to go to a smaller, perhaps more charming way of life. So that gives you some perspective on Jeff Bloom, the owner of Bloom Racing. He was a rider 30-odd years ago, mainly in the morning, but he did win 172 races in the afternoon, including something called the Manitoba Derby in 1985. When he finally gave that up after nine years, he became a financial analyst and software technology sales rep. You know, a smaller, more charming way of life. Certainly not a natural progression for a jockey. But like Michael Jordan, Jeff Bloom went back to what's in his DNA, and now he owns his own stable, one that had two runners in last year's Breeders' Cup, and now boasts one of the leading contenders to win the Kentucky Oaks. Smith now making his move on Midnight Bisou in the red colours from second last, taking off around the field, and she makes rapid headway to midfield, 5.16s to go. 13 squared, a two-length leader from Spectator, and we all have dreams. Here comes Midnight Bisou, mounting a mighty bit on the outside as she moves up within two lengths of the lead. 3.16s to go, and the leader is 13 squared, but not for long. Midnight Bisou claims her in a stride. Spectator is running a grand race, but six. To go and midnight Bizu with another assertive final furlong. The top filly of the meet deservedly wins the Grade One Santa Anita Oaks. Michael Jordan returned to basketball and won three more championships in a row. Bloom's Breeders' Cup starters didn't win. Snapper Sinclair in the Juvenile Turf and Sky Diamonds in the Philly and Mare Sprint. But midnight Bizu could realistically bring Jeff Bloom his Jordan-like crescendo. And we are pleased that Jeff Bloom can spare a couple of minutes for us here on In the Gate. You caught the racing bug at Del Mar, where you went with your older brother. I can just see your mother saying, a nice Jewish boy like you, Jeff, really? It's as if you were there. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we, we had no connection to anything related to horse racing whatsoever. And, and yes, my oldest brother took me to Del Mar and as we walked in the gates and went, we went straight, I'll never forget it. We walked through the gates and went straight to the saddling paddock. And as we were getting close to the paddock, I saw the jockeys standing in the ring next to the horses and then getting the leg up on those horses. And, and I literally said, that's what I'm going to do. I just fell in love with it. 
in that instant. And from that point on, I did nothing but drive my parents crazy about <laughs> becoming a jockey. And of course, we didn't have a clue as to how you'd even go about that, much less my parents wanting me to do that. Well, what kind of a, a reaction did your parents have to that? Shock. <laughs> you know, at, first, at first, it was easy for them to dismiss my, you know, desires because, you know, I was just a kid and, it, you know, it was something that they figured would wear off. But what I started doing was on my own, I would figure out ways to take a local bus to farms that were in the not too distant um, areas away from where we lived. And, and so I'd ride the bus for basically half the day and talk the people in at the farms I was at to just let me be around the horses. I would clean stalls, do whatever I could. And over time, my parents realized that this desire of mine wasn't going to go away. Well, eventually you became friendly with the GM at San Luis Ray Downs and learned real horsemanship. Oh, by the way, there was the fire there in December that claimed 46 horses. And just recently did San Luis Ray reopen for training. What does all of that mean to you? Yeah, it was pretty emotional because I did, in fact, end up moving to San Luis Ray. In fact, I lived in those dorms that are there on site at the track early in my career when I was just getting started. Eventually, what happened after the trainer slash general manager realized that I was committed to doing this, um, and he had told my parents this, I didn't know it, that I would get to move in with he and his family, which happened after my initial time in the dorms. So, yeah, I, I, all of my beginning training took place for years at San Luis Ray Downs. And so incredible memories from being there. And, and then to have this tragic fire hit, um, regardless of my connection to San Luis Ray, was devastating. And in addition to that, you know, I had my own horses stabled there. And so that was just a horrific experience on all levels. And Certainly people still are feeling the impact of it. Could have been a lot worse than it was, but at the same time, it was just a tragic, horrific event. A tribute, though, to everyone involved that that place is now back open for business. Uh, you rode for nearly a decade in the afternoon, but it seems like trainers considered you really valuable in the morning, especially Charlie Whittingham. What was it like working for the Bald Eagle? Well, that was special because no question, Charlie, arguably the best, if not, or one of the best, if not the best, you know, trainers in the history of, of our sport. And, and in addition to that, the fact that I just got to get on and be around so many incredible horses. I mean, every, I was the main work rider. So occasionally I would gallop horses, but mostly I was breathing the horses for the jockeys and you know, in, in any given day, I'd get on four grade one winners, you know, and it was, you know, a Kentucky Oaks winner and goodbye halo or another grade one winner and whatever race happened to be coming up the San Juan Capistrano. I mean, it was just one good horse after another. And I also was the work writer for Eddie Gregson as well when I was back at college. Um, and so it, it was fantastic because of course, in my riding career in the afternoons, I, I never had the opportunity to ride those kinds of horses uh, and while I did get to ride races, getting on those kinds of horses in the morning was, was really special. And, and it was also nice, too, because the trainers did trust me. And the teachings I had early in my career afforded me that opportunity from the standpoint of I, I was just a really good, I had a good sense of time. And trainers knew they could tell me how fast they wanted the horses to go. And I was also pretty well versed in helping 
communicate how the horse felt or what maybe equipment it needed and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it was a lot of fun and it helped add value to my role later, you know, in terms of what I do now. Boy, that's rare for a teenager because my son, who's 14, has absolutely no sense of time and it's extremely frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because the guy that taught me how to ride, uh, who you referred to earlier, Muzzy Francis, we would sit there and just watch horse after horse after horse and he would clock them and I would have to gauge the splits for those horses as they were going through their works. And so at the time it was just so monotonous, but now I, I get why he made me do that. When you hung up your tack, what made you decide to go into the corporate world? Yeah, good question. So, you know, my, at the end of my career, I had so many injuries and I was battling my weight. So there was a lot of downtime. And towards the latter part of my riding, I, I realized that this isn't going to happen forever, especially with one of my more recent injuries. And I told myself I didn't want to have to just rely on the racetrack for whatever reason even though I did have some good options in terms of going into training. I had clients that had offered me to do that. So I I just felt going back to school, which is something that my parents had ingrained in my head, you know, for so long that it's so important to have an education. I felt like, you know what, let me just do that. And so it was always in the back of my mind. And once I started down that path, I figured, okay, well, this does make sense. And I'll just, you know, initially I thought, I'll get into investment banking. And then I I, I didn't really want to have to move to New York. So it was just one of those things. Once I started it, I continued down that road. Now, I read that you actually tried to make a bit of a comeback so that your daughters could see you race. How did that go? (laughs) It was going to be a one race comeback. A friend of mine who had owned some horses had been bugging me for the longest time that I should ride my last race at Del Mar since that's where I rode my first one. And I kept saying no, but I had been working horses in the morning occasionally. And, and so I finally decided to do it because I thought it would be neat for my daughters to just at least get to see me ride in a race. And I really got to the point where I was fit enough to ride a race. The stewards and the jockeys had all approved it because I was race fit. And I was about one or two workouts away from my horse being ready to run that I was going to ride in the race. And as it happens, uh, the horse I was on decided to bolt and take me through the outside fence, almost killed me. Fortunately, I survived, and the uh, idea of me coming back for one race didn't happen. That is fortunate, at least that you were okay. Uh, Jeff Bloom, yeah. owner of Kentucky Oaks contender Midnight Bizu, joins us here on In the Gate. You often hear about trainers working as apprentices before going out on their own, but you did that as an owner first heading the West Coast Division of West Point Thoroughbreds for seven years and then starting Bloom Racing. What did you learn from working for West Point that you didn't know before? So West Point Thoroughbreds being a partnership company um, run by Terry Finley, it it was really just a well-rounded education. And not only on the horse side in terms of understanding how partnerships work and putting syndications together, but all the business underlying skill sets and tools that you need. I obviously had already had a pretty good and well-rounded business background from my experiences, both my degree from San Diego State and then also being in the working world. But um, it was was just a great, full, well-rounded opportunity to uh, gain experience in all levels of a horse racing partnership company. I started up and was running the West Coast operations. So, you know, pretty much I was doing everything out in the West Coast through 
the corporate headquarters of West Point. And so it was just all of those pieces that go into um, being part of a horse racing partnership uh, company. And, you know, it was a a great run. I was there for about seven years and and we had a really good time together. We had some great successes and I I certainly wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. It provided the foundation, the platform for me to go out and do it on my own. Now, many thoroughbred owners will tell you that you don't get involved in racing to make money. So now you own somewhere around 80 horses. How concerned are you with turning a profit versus simply enjoying being involved? Yeah, those are two separate things because on the racing side, we always talk about it being more of a lifestyle investment than a financial investment because it is a very challenging financial model to be involved with you know, owning and running racehorses. We do run the racing component of our business as a business with the attempt at making money, but a lot of the other things we're involved in are based in that context of generating profit and making money. Um, so, so you mentioned those horses. A lot of those horses are part of breeding partnerships that we have or breeding business um, uh, uh, divisions. Um, we have pin hooking horses where we buy those horses young and resell for profit. So a lot of those things tie into the idea of, of running this as a business and, and making money for for our uh, partners, investors. Um, and then on the racing side, yeah, there's no question. It's a very difficult financial model. And you just hope that you can um, construct the business in such a way that you're able to you know, be smart about uh, managing the costs and, and positioning the horses in the right places so that they can uh, generate revenue for you. Well, certainly Midnight Bizu has been a boon to the bottom line. Here comes Midnight Bisu, three wide, past the quarter pole, 13 squares, the new leader, chased into the stretch by the odds-on favourite, Midnight Bisu. They approach the eighth pole in the Santa Isabel, and Midnight Bisu, let go by Smith, shoots clear from 13 squared. Midnight Bisu, after breaking her maiden in a graded stakes, now conquers two turns in the Santa Isabel. She wins by a little over two lengths. An $80,000 sales purchase who's earned $450,000 already. A couple of runner-up finishes last year as a two-year-old. And then three straight stakes wins this winter and spring. Not that she was too shabby last year, but what's made the difference with her this year? I don't think there's any difference. I mean, her first start, you know, she lost by less than an inch. So you could say, I mean, she's about an inch away from being undefeated. And the horse that beat her in those two previous races as a two-year-old is a grade one winner. And in her second start um, in that race that she had lost, she had a horrible trip and still only lost by less than an inch. So she's continued to, you know, get better. She's maturing both mentally and physically, even though she's always been very ahead of her time in terms of her mental capacity as far as what her age is. But she's just been a lovely filly for us. Um, You know, we were high on her from the get-go. And she has continued to just impress us even more out there on the racetrack, in particular in her last start in the, uh, in the Santa Anita Oaks, just in the way that she accelerated her turn of foot, her composure. She's definitely made it a fantasy ride for us, no question. Do you see her becoming part of your broodmare band later on, or would she end up being a sales horse? Yeah, I mean, that's all up in the air. It all comes down to the dollars and cents of it, you know, her value already as a grade one winner is substantial. And so at at the end of the day, we just kind of sit down and evaluate what seems to be the best course of action as it relates to 
you know, what's the best financial decision. And, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing in horse racing because it is a business, but at the same time, there's a lot of emotions and you become very personally attached to each and every one of these animals. And so each situation is unique, but I'm not going to lie when I say it's a good position to be in to have her and know that there's a really good exit strategy available to us here. It's just which one is the, is the right one. Well, that leads into the, the last question I have, the difference between the P&Ls and the emotion. What would a Kentucky Oaks win mean to you, either from a P&L standpoint and or from an emotional standpoint? You know, when you ask me that question, I don't even think of it from a P&L standpoint, even though that's clearly a, a big piece of it. You know, the emotional side of it, to have somebody ask me that question and to know that we're currently number one on the points leaderboard for such an important race like the Kentucky Oaks. It's a special thing. I mean, I, I've been in this game pretty much my whole life. I know the significance of not only having an opportunity to have a contender in a race like that, but to be able to win the Kentucky Oaks, which is the pinnacle of our sport for the Phillies is on so many levels, hard to even describe. So it would be over the top, incredible. Um, You know, I wish my mother was around to see and experience what this is like. You know, it's great that my, my father still is and, and understands like what it means and what I've gone through to get here. So just for, for my family, my friends, our partners, for everybody, it's just such a huge thing to be able to think about. And I can tell you, we, we certainly don't take it lightly in any way, shape, or form. You know, after American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown in 2015, for his next start, Ahmed Zayat declared... Haskell Day at Monmouth to be Jewish Heritage Day, and he passed out Yarmulkes to everybody, though I'm still waiting for mine. If Midnight Bizu <laughs> wins this race, I expect you to do the same thing for her next start. <laughs> Jeff Bloop, thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Our thanks to Jeff Bloom and to Elliot Walden. Before American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, and even after, some talk came up about the schedule. Perhaps the Preakness and Belmont should be run further apart, since nowadays that's how training's handled. Scheduling's also an issue for the Santa Anita Handicap, traditionally run on the second Saturday of March. Mega races around that time have rendered the big cap irrelevant. Perhaps a change of date would give the race back its starch. But no one's ever thought of changing the Kentucky Derby date, always run on the first Saturday of May. You can argue horses in the spring of their three-year-old seasons are too young for the rigors they experience that day. The Epsom Derby, the British big one, is run in early June, on the same day as the Belmont Stakes most years. You could run the Kentucky Derby then, but it just wouldn't feel right. For the first Saturday in May, we reserve our cheers. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. Remember to join us as we continue our Kentucky Derby countdown all week. But for now, that's In The Gate. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you tomorrow.